Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 62nd episode of our podcast, I interviewed Aaron Fuhrer, co-founder and CEO of Panorama Education. Education has always been a passion for Aaron, and what ended up being the inspiration behind Panorama actually began when he was in high school. As a student organizer, he got a bill passed in the state of California, which was an attempt at giving students a voice through feedback surveys. Although the bill was passed, it didn't quite accomplish what he expected at all, and that frustration ultimately upped the ante for his mission to change the future of what education should be. Aaron and his co-founders started Panorama Education when they were students at Yale, juggling coursework while embarking on this entrepreneurial journey. Today, Panorama is a venture-backed company that helps schools collect and analyze data about social-emotional learning, school climate, engagement, and more through its Panorama platform. The company currently serves 9 million students across 900 school districts. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the panorama journey from the foundational years of building a company while in college to the current state of their business and products, his experience at Y Combinator and why that time was so valuable, advice on raising capital for first-time founders and how they raised funding from so many prominent investors, why focus in solving your customers' pain points are so important for building out successful products, a deep discussion around how he learned to be a leader, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, as you might have already guessed, Panorama is rapidly expanding the team. They are growing quickly and hiring for a number of key roles across the company, including marketing, sales, product, and client success leadership. Check out their biz page on VentureFizz for a full list of opportunities. That is VentureFizz.com backslash Panorama. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Aaron. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Keith. Aaron, it, it, it seems from all the research I've done about you that um, the, the passion that's carried forward in your career was about education. So where did that passion begin? In many ways, it came from my grandparents, actually. So my uh, mom's mother was a special education teacher in the Bronx for decades and grew up hearing her stories. And my, uh, my dad's father was a principal and district administrator in San Bernardino, um, led school desegregation work uh, for many years and kind of the type of educators who they just want to clone. You know, if you could clone my grandparents into every school you'd solve, you'd make a huge progress. And so uh, education was always a really big part of my childhood growing up. And then uh, by the time I got to high school, I, I realized that I had been really fortunate to have a great education and a lot of my other peers were not having the same experience. And so one of those moments where you realize how lucky you are and how much you want to bring that for everybody. And let's go way back. So where did you actually grow up and what did your parents do for work? Yeah, so, so I grew up um, in Los Angeles, sort of central city. Um, my, uh, my mother was an environmental attorney for NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council. And so my childhood was her um, sort of enforcing environmental laws, um, ensuring kind of working to improve air quality in Los Angeles. Um, and my- Tough job. <laughs> very, very, very tough jobs. She was uh, always suing bad guys and, and really big companies, making sure they were doing the right thing. Mom is a complete badass. Um, <laughs> and my, uh, my dad, when I was a little kid, ran a legal aid firm in Los Angeles for folks who needed legal help and couldn't afford it, um, and then served on the city council in, in LA. Now, it seems like uh, computers was something that you are, got interested in. So at, at what age did you start to get interested in, in computers? 
Third grade, I bought my first book on HTML and JavaScript. Wow, third grade. <laughs> it was funny. So I ended up going to my websites in kind of elementary school and then also um, learned C and Visual Basic to create uh, video games at the time. Um, and yeah, I guess I shared, created my first video game in fourth grade, sold it for a fundraiser at my elementary school. Um, so that and- was your first entrep- journey in a, into entrepreneurship then? It was uh, one of, one of my, uh, yeah, we raised about $500 uh, for some really important improvements at my school. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so if, for people that have listened to this podcast before, like I, I always, you know, my first computer was a Texas Instruments TI-994A, 90, but I, I actually couldn't write the programs myself. I didn't have the intellectual athleticism, but I would buy the books and copy them into basic and play the games afterwards. So okay. <laughs> I but love that now in, in, in high school, right? So uh, you were a student organizer and you, you did something really extraordinary that I, just as a high schooler, you, you actually got a bill passed. Like what, what was that for? Yeah, it's interesting. So, so I entered high school and my whole life is coding computers. That's my passion. That's my joy. Um, in my high school, I, got, I have 5,100 students at my high school. It's wow. huge LA yeah. high school. I realized we have... 1600 freshmen and 800 students graduating every year so the shape of a school you kind of see my background my that's when i realized really how important education was something i took for granted really mattered and so um i got recruited by a group of students at my high school actually to be a student organizer and help fight for better schools and so we were organizing walkouts and rallies and protests and petitions uh trying to make better schools um and so one of the things we did is that um, we had seen a bunch of students across the state had been running their own sort of guerrilla feedback surveys at their school. So, you know, before SurveyMonkey, like walk around your school surveying students just to really show educators kind of what students think about school. And mm-hmm. so uh, we tried to get and got a bill passed in California. Uh, we, we pitched the state senator to say, look, you really should take these student feedback surveys that students are running and make it a core part of what happens in the state. You should survey every student, you know, do a customer feedback survey of every student in the state, give students a voice. Um, they'll, they'll confess the original bill was gonna give a voice to every student in the state. The final bill that passed, every school shall be encouraged to run an optional student feedback survey. And if I'm being honest, really, it, it didn't accomplish very much besides the fact that it inspired me to start Panorama because it was so ineffective. Well, that, and that's a good point. So here is something that you realize you worked so hard and you like, you know, as a high school student got a, a bill passed that was going to make this major chain change, yet nothing really happened. That's like so disappointing, yet it gave you more spunk to do something much greater, which uh, we're going to talk a lot about. Now, then you decide to go to Yale, obviously great academic institution, but you study political science, right? Like you're loving computers. You didn't go somewhere and study computer science. Why did you go to Yale and study poli sci? Yeah, well, at first I, I decided I really wanted the maximal liberal arts experience. Like I think I realized in high school that my interest was more in like changing what the universe looks like as opposed to just writing computer programs. And so I wanted to do the maximal liberal arts experience Honest reason I was a poli sci major. I loved poli sci, but um, it was the only major I had the credits in to graduate. I was actually a double major until my senior spring, and then poli sci was the only one who would take me. 
and we're going to talk why about that soon. <laughs> that's, that that's, a, um, that's a funny segue. Um, okay, so you're um, co-founder and CEO of Panorama Education. What does your company do? Sure. So, so Panorama, we serve right now about 9 million students across the country, about 900 school districts. And so we've got a, a platform that schools use to sort of build what the future of education should be. And so concretely, you know, schools use Panorama One to get a ton of feedback from students, parents, and teachers about how everybody wants to make school better. And then we also help schools measure social emotional learning skills for kids. Uh, so picture schools measure English and math. We help them understand growth mindset, self-management, do kids feel safe? Are they building adult relationships? Um, and then finally, we also help schools look across everything, across English, math, attendance, behavior, make sure every student is on a path towards graduation. So it's a pretty wonky, but becomes sort of the core platform a school uses to really improve what education looks like for kids. That's perfect. So the uh, let's let's go back because it's the, the the great story here is actually how you built this company. So let's just, we're gonna go backwards in time now. So um, you're at Yale. At what point do you decide that you want to start building a company? Like, what was the aha moment that you're like, okay, uh, I'm I'm in whatever year in college, I'm gonna start building a company. So I confess, we never actually wanted to build a company. Like most founding stories, start with that. Ours did not. Um, I've been organizing students now for seven years, trying to fight for better schools and hadn't really accomplished very much. Like there are, you know, a bunch of other stories similar to the bill. We were not successful as students organizing for it. I remember talking to my parents and my, my parents sort of advising me that it's one thing to fight for something, but the real power comes from actually making it happen. And so decided let's start a little side project, trying to find districts who want to take our priorities as student organizers and make it happen. And so originally we had no name, no, you know, no, we'd be shocked by where we are today. All we wanted to do was to help some local districts at first just run those student feedback surveys. Um, and so inside of that spring, we're just gonna go door to door trying to find districts and see in many ways, Panorama was not like, was like the last thing we had tried. We'd now been trying these student organizing approaches for seven years. And Panorama was like the last thing we were gonna try before giving up. And then it so happened this was that we finally reached something that was effective. And what, what year was this in, in college? It was 2012, we were, it was our junior spring of college. Junior year, okay. And then at what point did you uh, see, you know, some results of that? And then was, were your co-founders involved at this stage too? Or Yeah, and so, um, you know, my co-founders and a couple other co-founders were also involved at this early stage. We were literally just trying to go around Connecticut and California, signing up any, you know, anybody who will talk to us, we'll pitch them on our vision for student feedback. Um, just kind of going door to door, Yale and the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute gave us some funding that summer to build out, kind of start building out some ideas here. Um, and then finally by senior spring, you know, by our senior spring, we had about half a million dollars in revenue, about 25 districts on Panorama. And we kind of started to contemplate, hey, maybe we shouldn't get real jobs. We should actually work on, I mean, it, it was so unclear it was gonna happen. One of our co-founders had already accepted a Rhodes Scholarship um, <laughs> at this point in time. Um, and so it wasn't really until our senior spring, we were like, actually, there might be something here. 
All right, so you're you finally figure out okay we we have an opportunity here to uh build a company like this may actually work so and so yale entrepreneurship institute so yei so that's like the incubator like the harvard innovation lab of yale exactly okay. so uh, like how did you figure out getting your first customer like because there was a point in time where you had revenue senior year so how did you get your first paying customer in college yeah um it's funny. So the first paying customer preceded Panorama. I remember we actually incorporated the company and signed our first contract on the same day. Um, at that stage, we were basically anybody who would talk to us and take a meeting, we would talk to. It turned out um, that there was a student at Princeton who had run for an adult school board seat in his district with a vision really giving every student a voice. And it's kind of corny, but my, my parents actually found a newspaper article about this student, sent it to me, I hooked up with him. Um, and long story short, we ended up meeting the superintendent of this district, uh, La Cunata Unified outside of LA. And the superintendent, this woman named Wendy Sinet, our longest time customer, was just immediate meeting of the minds. Like her vision was a district where every student, every parent, every teacher has a voice. That was ours too. And so we said, Wendy, like, you know, let us work with you on this. Let us get this off the ground. Um, and then La Cunata became our first customer, um, still a customer to this day. And I guess, you know, you had credibility for this meeting. It's not like you're like, oh, education needs to be disrupted and I'm going to do it. Like you had seven plus years of evangelizing this whole concept. So I'm sure in that meeting, it was very much a, uh, Wendy wasn't like, I'm just meeting with a couple college kids that have this idea. It's like you had deep subject matter expertise and obviously passion. Exactly. And I think what's helpful for us is that we had a really, we had to have a really broad vision that we want to radically change what education looks like. We decided to do one thing and do it really, really well, right? So this really broad vision for changing education. And we spent our first three years helping schools run feedback surveys of students, parents, and teachers. I mean, I remember, right, we raised $16 million for school surveys. People thought we were sort of ludicrous, but it was a good lesson for us that you do one thing that matters and do it really, really well. It's been kind of our panorama playbook is that have a really expansive vision, but tackle one very real problem at a time. And it mattered a lot walking to that meeting saying to Wendy, like, look, we really want to improve what education looks like. Here's one thing we should do now that's really going to matter. We're going to give every student in your district a voice. Uh, that was a really powerful first meeting. I think a good lesson um, in, in focus when you're starting off. And how did you actually deliver the first version of that product and like uh, report back on the results? Yeah. Um, so it's funny. So, so I think in many ways, Wendy shaped the modern vision of Panorama. So we actually at that point only wanted to do student surveys. And the superintendent, to her credit, said, this is a community. You need teacher voice and you need parent voice as well. And in classic fashion, we said, yes, of course, we'd love to do that. And so the first version, in many ways, was we had our vision of what it should look like. And the first version was basically us um, coding every spare minute we could get, taking our vision and their requests and building a product around that. And so our original feature set was basically what we thought it should be and what our first customer thought it should be. And that was the first product. Now, you were, again, to reiterate, you were doing this while you were in college at Yale, right? <laughs> One of the finest institutions in the world. How are you doing this with a course load of, I'm, I'm assuming, a very difficult uh, and challenging schoolwork? 
Yeah, it, it's funny. I mean, I think there are a lot of stories about students dropping out to start their companies. It's pretty, no one thought it was a particularly good idea to keep running a company while we're in school in many ways. I how, many, how many hours were you working like on the company? I mean, all of us are probably working 30 to 40 hours a week. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so at that time it was, I had a serious relationship, 30, 40 hours a week of Panorama, <laughs> really heavy course load, right. trying to get three days that semester in a really intense course load and build it up and a great group of friends. I, um, I, I was notorious that we, we'd go out on like a Friday night, I would have a cup of coffee in one hand and a different beverage in another hand. And that was <laughs> my speaker in my friend group. Um, to this day, I still get made fun of for that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. So uh, senior year, you know, you do have this company that has 500,000 in revenue and then you, you apply to Y Combinator. So what, what was that experience like as far as going through that application process? And what, what do you think you learned from Y Combinator? And first going in, we, we thought there's no way in hack we were going to get in. Um, I think we were just, you know, these students from Yale, Yale wasn't really known as a strong startup school brand, right? Like Stanford, yes, Yale, not as much. We, we ended up coincidentally meeting Michael Siebel, who's now the, the um, leads the CEO at Y Combinator. But at the time, Michael Siebel was kind of an early partner at YC, part-time. He had dropped out of Yale, actually. So there's kind of a connection there. Um, and Michael Siebel, we thought it wasn't worth it. No way we're getting in. You know, we, we felt kind of like, you know, we, we, that's not, we, we don't belong there. Uh, like we're, we're just kind of, we're too young, we're too basic. And, and Michael was like, look, you should apply, give it a shot. Uh, he was kind of the, one of the first early people to really believe in us as Michael encouraged us to apply. Um, one through Y Combinator, I remember the feeling like, I think there's some moments that you, that like I have felt like I was the smartest kid in my class, like in, in school. I remember first day of YC, I have, I felt like the dumbest kid in the class. You know, that feeling, a very humbling feeling. I mean, like, like DoorDash was in our class. They were adding like millions of dollars of revenue a week. I go to YC, right? You should know if I see it. And it was, uh, it was great. I mean, just to go to a combinator. And here we were, the youngest people in our batch, I think, or some of the youngest, trying to build an education company. Everyone is like deeply experienced, you know, experienced Google engineers, Facebook engineers, and we're there. Um, and it was really fantastic because that feeling of humility that like you really have to earn your place here was a huge kick for us. Um, and I think it was just what the, y, the Y Combinator partners really, I think, just showered us with love and support and advice, like really pushed us. But it was both this real deep push and a ton of incredible support. Some of my favorite mentors to this day are the Y Combinator partners, um, you know, who just really dedicated a ton of time with us that summer. It, like the experience there, like from what I've gathered, it's um, deeply rooted in focus, right? Like is it, was that your experience there as well? Yes, yeah, so I think that's exactly right. That focus was a really core part of Y Combinator. One thing I think we appreciated was that YC was all about, you know, this is the most highly leveraged time of your startup's life so far. And your mission is to make as much progress as possible by demo day. And that means like, there's no room for the trappings of being a founder. There's no room for like coffee dates and social events and parties and that kind of thing. I mean, my memories of YC were like six of us in a house together. You'd like make a pot of coffee at 9 p.m. and keep coding, get as much work as possible through. Um, it was a really great foundation that, that focus becomes part of the DNA of the company and it's fantastic. That's awesome. Well, you know, since Y Combinator, you know, you have raised 
a lot of capital, 32 million all in from uh, many great, uh, you know, investors like Emerson Collective, which is Lorene Powell Jobs uh, firm, Owl Ventures, Spark Capital, Uncore Capital. Um, but going back to your initial funding, you had some really prominent names there as well. So there's been prominent investors from day one with your company. So, you know, the early investors were uh, Mark Zuckerberg's Startup Education Fund, which is now the Zuckerberg Chan Initiative, Google, Ashton Kushner, Eric Ries. So how did you get such an amazing group of people to invest in your vision? It's funny, we entered YC not planning to raise money. We told the YC partners, we are profitable and we want to grow this profitably. And then finally, kind of we worked it out and ended up changing our minds like right before demo day to raise money. Um, I think what was um, what was important to me, I just a couple things. One, I think we had really taken the YC mission to heart to build as much traction as possible over the summer. I think it was pretty rare for companies to have serious revenue growth at demo day. And that was very special and important. And the kind of dual story where we are going to build a company that radically changes what the world looks like. And we are actually now a profitable, successful business as like 22 year olds selling into large school districts. That story was kind of incongruous in so many interesting ways. And then we were lucky actually, I think I'll also say there was um, one particular investor, so Uncork Capital, um, Jeff Clavier, Stephanie Palmieri, who were the first ones to believe in us. And they actually, not a super known story, they actually got us a term sheet the morning of demo day before we entered demo day and ended up leading our seed round. And so, it takes one person to believe in you. And once that was in place, they helped us arrange the round, bring in other people, and it's just momentum fed upon itself. Um, I would say there was some magic. And then I remember after demo day, I spent the next three weeks, you know, probably doing a hundred meetings in that period of time. Um, it was this wild, wild period of just getting the, the seed round done, kind of frenetic. Um, so, so and what, what advice would you give to first-time founders on raising capital? So I think the key thing that we discovered in the seed round process is that, um, one, for us, it was important to paint a really broad vision for why it was going to be important. And I think it was valuable for us, you know, we were convincing people basically that you should invest in the school survey product because we have this massive vision. And that was really important to us to clearly articulate why Panorama was going to be one of the most important companies in the world within 10 years. It was also really important to articulate why we were the team to do it. And it was helpful for us because as 22 year olds, we had no job experience, right? Like, I mean, um, my co-founder sold Cutco Knives, like I interned in Congress, like and what the hell kind of experience did we have? So it forced us that our entire, we couldn't scan on our experience was all about our track record of what we built. And so all of the pitch meetings were all about showing our attraction to date as evidence of what we could achieve. And that was actually a really powerful for forcing function where there was nothing special about us. All we had to do, we could only bring in data about the traction we had. And that was the only way to prove that we were gonna be successful. And I thought that was a pretty effective kind of combination of things in hindsight with this grand vision for impact paired with a track record of like, here's what we've done so far to date. So show traction as much as possible. Exactly. Well, exactly. I think forces you, right? you can't spend too much time building a product in isolation, creating slide decks, all you're allowed to show. Like if you have a strong resume, you might be able to get away with that. But for us, 
all we could do was share hard data of what we had done so far. Um, and that was a really good forcing function to force us to like front load as much like real customer growth as possible. What about advice for founders that are building out like the first version of their product? Like, you know, some people may think uh, this is what the customer wants or some people may actually spend time with their customer, understand what they really want. So like what, like how did you think about that and what advice would you give to other founders building version one of their product? So I think the most important thing from my perspective is to figure out what are the most important problems your customer has. And at their core, you're not going to change your customer's stack of problems. Now, this doesn't apply to like social media, but for us like working with schools, you have to figure out what are your customer's most important problems. And you don't get to change that list, at least initially. And then you can figure out once you know your customer's like top three problems, you can start thinking about what solution do they want? What solution do they need? What does it matter? And to me, I think the most important foundation though is rooting in their existing problems. And then you can innovate on the solution. And for the most part, I find that like the companies that don't succeed, they're selling to problems that they want the customer to have, but the customer doesn't have, mm -hmm. or they're selling to like a number seven problem. And the customer's only gonna buy for their top three problems. And so that I think becomes really important is like, top three problems, you can't influence it, you can only understand it, and then create a smart solution to those problems. And at what point was it a you know time for your company to expand? Like you said, you were very focused on the first product, uh, but eventually you have expanded. So w at what point did you finally realize, okay, now it's time for us to expand the platform and like, what are the other things you're doing now? Yeah, so, so the first expansion we had was to go from gathering data about how the school is doing overall to understanding how every child is building social emotional skills. Sort of the same playbook about what matters for a child that everybody agrees matters, but we don't have data on. And that's where the second part of our work came from. Um, our philosophy, which is controversial, but our philosophy has been that we only move on to the next thing once we think we have done a really strong job with the first area, and then we validate and test is the next thing worth doing. Um, in our case, actually, we it really just came from what do our customers really want us to do next? And that was a natural expansion point for us. Um, but we waited a very, we did a ton of discipline. I mean, we were chomping at the bed and I, as I think we're our investors to actually expand beyond our first product, but we only wanted to do it once we had the resources to do it really, really well. Now, the other thing that is interesting is, you know, you've, been uh, an entrepreneur, like you, you know, you started a company in college. You never had a, a job other than the internship you mentioned. I mean, did you say your co-founder sold knives? Yeah. Uh, so he did the door-to-door -door thing. Door-to-door cut. -door so, so that's street cred in itself. Anyone that can do that and hang in that job is going to be successful. <laughs> so, yeah. but so, um, how, did you, how, how did you learn to lead? How did how did you learn to like you know be a leader of a company? I think a few things. So part of it for me personally was. A lot of my organizing experience in high school was actually tremendously valuable in hindsight that, you know, organizing students, I mean, we would organize massive petitions across Los Angeles. Organizing, like organizing is actually not terribly different from enterprise sales and organizational leadership. It's just, you know, I was organizing 16 year olds, not like really sophisticated professionals. Um, I think a couple things, one, 
we don't often admit this, but I think our parents have been really fantastic role models um, and examples. Like both of my co-founders' parents are really talented, thoughtful um, executives, um, people leaders, managers. Uh, my parents as well, really strong leaders, great role models. The key though for us has been just really surrounding us by really fantastic people. Like I think trying to make sure that everybody we bring to Panorama is going to raise the talent bar. Like it's funny, right? there's a saying you should hire all of your smartest friends when you start your company. For us, that was a really dumb idea because all of our, you know, we didn't do that because if we hired all of our smartest friends, we would have been a bunch of people don't know what they're doing. Instead, we figured out and said, who are the people who we think we're gonna learn the most from and are really gonna build this company and hired kind of a really experienced bench of initial hires uh, for a really junior founding team. And so, um, the last thing I'd say is important is that I think humility has been a really important value at Panorama, where every day my co-founder and I wake up and say, we need to continue earning our place in this position at the company. And like, we are not good at our jobs yet. And I want to get good at my job. And that's a really powerful framing where every day is like me trying to grow in my role. Um, I, sometimes, I sometimes feel like I have finally gotten good at being like a 60 person company CEO, which is great, but we're 120 people. So <laughs> um, uh, I've never mastered my job and I, that's just a constant pursuit for me and my co-founder. What, um, like, what do you think you had to learn? Like what was like, I don't want to ask the cliche, like what was your biggest mistake? But like, what do you think you had to like really work at to improve upon? I think a few things have been important leadership areas. I think, um, for me personally, I think my co-founder has always been a stronger people manager. Um, and I love I love that part of my job. I embrace it. I think that's been a really important area for me to be like, what is an exceptionally good manager? One of my blind spots is that I have never had a good manager. So I have no role models in that respect, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I think the most important area is that as a, as a young founder, there's kind of this temptation to constantly be too creative about things that have already been solved, right? Like you, the company, you want to be creative about sales process and creative about talent policies. And like, mm -hmm. you kind of just want to invent all these things. I'm like, right, engineering brand want to invent these things. And one of the most important things my co-founder and I has been to really think deeply about where do we want to innovate and where do we want to just take a best practice and adopt it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, we're launching the next level of our talent policies right now. And there's a lot of great work to borrow from. And it's been a good reminder to us that like taking, you know, or sales, really great methodologies for sales. We should adopt existing methodologies and then adapt them for us. But we shouldn't just create it all from scratch. And that's been a really powerful reframe. My co-founder and I has been to just really adopt a lot of great stuff that exists as opposed to creating it all from scratch. Now, you have gone through, um, you know, uh, different accelerators. I'm sure you've gotten lots of lots of advice from lots of people, right? So, uh, you know, how do you decide which advice is useful for you and which advice maybe not the best advice? It's a good question. Because um, everyone has an opinion, right? So it's like, especially when you're an entrepreneur, everyone's like, oh, this is how you do it. Or don't do that. Right. Oh, you got to sell it to school districts. What are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. It's like the one thing is, I, I think, first of all, my favorite type of advice is a story about someone's own experience. 
And in general, I find it much more valuable to hear how people solve similar problems and what the results were in their own experience. And the best advice, like Zan and I now have heard a lot of the same advice. And so we'll talk to each other and literally recall a moment from one of the YC speakers who was like, when this happened, they did this. And so my favorite advice is someone's own story and pattern. My co-founder and I are both history nerds. And so hearing the history is helpful. Mm -hmm. In terms of advice, I think boiling down to the why is what gets most valuable. Like a ton of people told us in the early days, you shouldn't sell to schools, that's a stupid idea. And we would just keep asking why? Like, what do you think is gonna be hard about that? And eventually you get down to a bunch of testable hypotheses underlying that advice. And I find in general that a lot of advice does come in that blunt form. And I wanna basically distill it down to like, what are the facts that you know? What are the hypotheses you know? And most advice you get is somebody else's guess about how your business works. And I just want to test it. <laughs> right. They have their opinion, but they don't actually have experience doing it. They just have heard or, you know. Right. You know but most people who say you shouldn't sell into schools have always failed at selling into schools. Right. And therefore that's the case. Um, and so it's beneficial to understand like why they failed and what didn't work on that front. Um, I also think, by the way, I think hearing advice about successes is often like, Understanding why something works is as is as valuable. I think we sought out people who've done it successfully. After so many people told us you can't do it, we eventually said to ourselves, "We just want to find a bunch of people who have sold the school because we need to hear exactly what has worked, not just because people who failed didn't know why they failed." Right. Yeah. You know, let's hang out with the winners versus the losers. Yeah. <laughs> So, so what's the current state of entrepreneurship on campus at Yale? I mean, that you know, that you were you know one of the um, successful people to go through the program. Like, what's what's the the vibe on campus now? If you if you have some insight there. Yeah, I mean, so, so I think in a positive way, Yale is really deeply choosing to invest deeply in entrepreneurship. But there haven't been as many kind of massive. You know, Yale success stories yet, I think, you know, Ben Silverman at Pinterest is like one of the held up as like one of the most prominent Yale alums. Um, I think what's helpful, so Yale, I think, A, is choosing to prioritize this. I think in a positive way, Yale's liberal arts focus is a strength and not a weakness. Like, I think, I am so glad that I graduated. I'm so glad I didn't drop out. I'm so glad that my Yale career was liberal arts and not CS, actually. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it makes me much more well-rounded founder and that's a huge asset. Yale is kind of embracing that. I think one of the benefits of Yale right now is that the Yale community is tight enough that it is really, really supportive. So like you were asking about Eric Reese, for example. Um, Eric Reese is a Panorama investor because Eric Reese is a Yaley, we were Yaleys and as much as I want to say he would have loved to invest in us if we went to Harvard, like, no, he's, it's a Yale community investment. Like a lot of our investors are actually like alumni in the Yale community being deeply supportive of other Yale companies. And that's sort of a secret in our cap table that's mattered a lot. That's awesome. What do you like to do outside of work? I will say I'm still in that stage of trying to figure out like what work-life balance as a founder is one of the harder things I think actually to figure out of like what is sustainable. Um, my personal favorite thing right now is that I've just found a real joy in cooking and I, I know it's corny but there's something where I don't usually get to finish things on a daily basis like Panorama is like 
a 20 plus year project to build an extraordinary company. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things to do is to cook something. It's a rare moment I can actually like start something and finish it right. in like an evening and actually fruit, like enjoy the fruits of it. Yeah. Um, and it's so tangible to actually make something. So I, I had to say like, it's corny, but my, my favorite thing right now has just been like, I cook myself a lavish three course meal once a week and it's glorious. Well, obviously uh, Panorama is growing and hiring. So what's, is it across the board? Yeah, so right now we are, you know, really strong period of growth, hiring across the board, a lot of hiring in engineering and product and design and customer success. One huge area for us, of course, is we are growing and scaling out the sales team. We are like really, really strong moment in the market for us. So really growing and hiring on the sales side is important. I think also coming up, um, there, there are two key leadership roles that we're hiring for. We're hiring for um, uh, a leader for our client success team at the moment, and then also planning as we enter 2019 uh, to look for kind of a, a leader for people and talent at Panorama. Well, that's exciting. Well, obviously, there's a ton of opportunity at Panorama Education, so you can check out all their job openings on VentureFizz or certainly your own careers page. But uh, Aaron, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and the great you know, history of, 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 the, of the company that you're building. Thank you, Keith. This has been a treat. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.